This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Okay, Parshas B'Shalaf 5784. The Pesach we're going to talk about is Parakas Zayin, Pesach Yud Gimel. It says, Vayi Ba'erev, it was in the evening, Batala Slav, and the quail, the slav, came up, Batchas Zamachna, and it covered the entire camp of a voker, Tal Savilamachna. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew, right, that was lying all around the camp itself. So first of all, what was the slav? So Rashi says it was a type of bird which is very fat, based on Yuma Ayinheim Abeis. Targum Yonason calls it Pisyonin, which probably means pheasant, so it's a type of pheasant. Gorarye says this comes from the letter Hay before the word slav, indicating that there was a bird that was chashuv and well-known to the people there, and they all knew it as this specific animal, whatever this is. So Ravari Kaplan says it was usually identified with a common quail, Titernix Ziternix, right, classic Ravari Kaplan giving the Latin name, right, the smallest member of the quail family, and is particularly abundant during the migratory season. For those who don't know, it happens to be that Eretz Yisrael is a major area for migratory birds. Every bird goes there, like thousands upon thousands of birds. They come up in immense numbers from Arabia and other countries. There are three other members of this family that live in or migrate through Eretz Yisrael, the sand partridge, the blank Franklin, Black Franklin, sorry, and Hukar, right? It's probably pronounced Chukar, but I like Hukar better. Of course, 3,000 years ago, there may have been other birds that are now extinct in the region, right? But that's that. If you want to look it up, you could look, look, look up common quail. It's got a really nice little look, right? And it's a little fat. There are different types of them. Okay. Nachlas Young Yaakov wonders why Rashi tells us this, especially since the Gemara Yuma says there are four types of slav, and this is the worst one of all four. So why is he telling us this? But the Bear of Asada argues that the slav with a samach is the worst one. But the slub with a sin refers to all four of them. They're all fat birds. So Rashi's certainly referring to all of them, and that's what he said. So it could be that there were four different types, not just the common quail, I don't know what the other three are. The Chassam Sofer in Torah's Moshe says that the word slav is the Gematra 346, if you include the Yud, and that's Moshe with the Kolo. 345 plus 1. This is because not only was the Mun given in the Schos of Moshe Rabbeinu, but the Slav was as well. Aharon has the letters of Ner and Or in his name, because the Amud Esh was in his Schos, and Miriam was Mar, which in a different place in Tanakh means the word drip, that it means to drip with something, right? So that's something that it refers to over here, and Yam, obviously being the Sea of Water, referring to her Schos being the Be'er Shal Miriam. All three gifts were given to Klayasol are hinted within their names. Anyway, where did they come up from? It says Vata'ala Slav. So where did they come up from? The Ibn Ezra suggests that they came from the Yam nearby. It would make sense to say that it went up from the sea, since the sea level was always lower than the areas nearby, which were a bit higher. And the same wording is used in Parz Baloslo, where it says Vayigez. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says this word is used because it seemed so normal, so natural, and made sense that the Slav came to them. They didn't think twice about it. The Mun, however, has the word Vatihi, as if it just appeared in front of them since it was so shocking, and they didn't expect it whatsoever. I, I'm not sure I understand completely what the whole question is, meaning if it says Vatal, that it came up, it's probably that it was something that they all came up from their migratory pattern. Like, if these are migratory birds, they don't naturally live in the desert. I don't think many birds live naturally in the desert. They were coming up from other areas. Of course you'd use the words Vatal. I'm not sure what else you would think. Anyway, the Shach says the wording of the puzzle indicates that they may not have ever eaten the slub that they received. Hear this? They didn't eat it. Maybe when they saw every taste they wanted was already in the mun, and they knew that Moshe Rabbeinu was upset at them for asking for meat, they decided not to take any of the slav at all. 
the Erevav may have also stayed away from them, thinking that if B'nai Yisrael weren't eating them, they shouldn't die there. Maybe that's one of the reasons why there was a Zecher for the Mun, but not for the Slav, because in the end, it wasn't good for them, and they didn't have it. So according to the Shachal Torah, they never ate the Slav, which is going to explain something a little bit later on as well. But the Rishonim seem to say that they certainly ate from it. The Balaturim of Aloscha, Yud Aleph says B'nai Yisrael were able to taste the Slav, taste in the Slav, everything that they wanted, except for the taste of the Livyasan. That's how they taste it in this love. The Rokech says the same in Parsh Baloscha. Maybe the reason they couldn't taste the Levyasim is because that taste is being safe for Tzaditim and Even though this generation was filled with great people, they weren't Zohar to have this time. In fact, this generation may not, Dora Midborn may not have a Chelek in Olam Haba. So it's possible that that's what it's referring to. They couldn't get the Levyasim because they weren't going to live in that world. The Oats are close. The Torah says it could be that even when they were able to taste more in this love, they were able to taste more in this love than they could in the Mun. By the Mun, there were five tastes that, for whatever reason, they couldn't be tasted in there. Cucumbers, melons, certain grasses, onions, and garlic. But those weren't limited in the Slav. They could taste absolutely everything, even these five, aside from the Levyasin. So, in fact, the Slav tasted to them better than the actual Mun itself. That's what the Otsarpolos Torah points out. Yuma, Ayin Hamabes, he says that the word is written with a sin and is pronounced as a samach. We already talked about that before, that the slav with the samach was the bad one. Slav with a sin is inclusive. But this might be because there's a difference between tzaddikim and rishayim when it came to eating this meat. The tzaddikim ate it peacefully, right? It's with shalva, right? Some type of tranquility in a way. While the rishayim felt it like thorns in their stomach, like a silon with a samach. Shalva obviously is a shin, silon is a thorn. So it depended on what kind of people. Shlove was good. Slav was bad. The Torah to me points out there may have been others who were in between who had to go to the bathroom immediately after eating it and couldn't hold themselves back. The Rashaim had it sit in their stomachs for 30 days straight and it pained them greatly with constipation because they could never go to the bathroom. So how long were they graced with the presence of this bird? How long was the slav with them? So the Ramban says in Pothogid Bays that these birds joined them every evening throughout their stay in the desert, similar to the mun coming to them every morning. This is what they were complaining about and this is Hashem's response. What would have helped them to get meat for a few days and then not have anything for the next 39 years. They complained, they wanted food, and they got the mun, and they got the slav. So it happened for all 40 years. The Parsha speaks at length about the mun, but then it could have been speaking about the slav just as much as it could have spoken about the mun. That's how the Ramban looks at it. So why did they complain about a lack of meat in Parsha Baloscha? In the 40th year, they said they had no meat. But why? They had the slav every single night. So the answer might be because they never had enough meat, and they never felt full as they did with the Mun. They were able to have, but they didn't have a lot. There was a limited amount of slav that came to them every evening. And it seemed to them that it was taken by the leaders of the generation and not by the common folk. Meaning, there were a lot of people who never got the slav. Or maybe they had it once in their lives, but they couldn't get it a lot of times. The young men among them had a taiva for it. They couldn't fulfill that taiva. And that's why they complained. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's response to them was to give them an absolute ton of slav in Parzbalos, a handfuls of it that they could all take home and feast on daily. And that was a little bit too much, as it says over there. Now, there Rabbeinu Bechaya says that the slav started falling on a Sunday and remained for the next 40 years just like the Mun, similar to the Ramban. The latter fell every morning, the Mun, and this came to them every night. The only reason the Mun was mentioned constantly was because it was a tremendous miracle. The bird seemed more natural. So he takes the Ramban, but he explains it a little bit more. Tosa says the same, claiming it was, when it, when it says he's avu taiva later on, it means they had a bigger taiva. They still had the slav, but they wanted more meat, not just the slav, 
And that's what they were complaining about. I don't know how the answer, the response of Hashem helps, though, because Hashem gave them slav. So if they were complaining that we already have slav, why would HaKadosh Baruch then give them slav? But that's what Tosa says. Bali Tosa is in Yuma. Bali Tosa says it's possible that the meat that they wanted in Parshat Baloscha had nothing to do with actual meat. It referred to Arias. They wanted to matter certain people for themselves that they had desires for. Meat they already had. They, of course, had herds and flocks of animals that they had brought out as well, so it shouldn't have been taken literally as what happened after that. And Hashem's response to Bali Tosa discussed it over there, but they say that the meat over there was nothing because they had the meat all 40 years. So altogether, we have Bali Tosa, the Ramban, the Rabbeinu Bahaya, who all say that the meat was there with them for the next 40 years. However, the Ramban says in Pshat that it could be that the Mun came down from them daily while the Slav only came once in a while and they were never sure when it was going to happen. They wanted the Slav to be constant like the Mun, but they didn't get that until the 40th year of the desert. That's a possibility. The Bahor Shor says a huge Chiddush that they never received meat now only the mun. It's referencing what would happen in Parshish Baloslam. Because we bring them up eating mun, we bring up the slav of the future as well. If they really had received the slav now, and that had calmed them down, Moshe Rabbeinu would have never said later on, Atzonu bakar yishachit lahem lahem. Would he be able to give them all the meat in the world? Such a claim, because it sounds like they had never had any meat since Egypt. So according to the Bahor Shore, they didn't. The slav here is a reference to 39 years later. They got the mun now, but the slav they would only get 39 years later when they complained a second time. Is that crazy? But that's the Bahor Shores Shita, that they never had the slav the first year. The slav never came now. This was not about, the slav is just added on. However, the Balotrum says the slav did come down in heaps, and then it stopped at one point. Which means that it did come down right now, but then it stopped, and that's why they asked for it later on. The Tosas Arochen, Taiva, seems to say about this as well. That's why they complain about this years later, since they hadn't had the slug for quite a long time. So it came once in a while, but then it stopped. Chizkuni says the exact same thing. Unlike the Ramban, unlike the Bahor Shore, unlike the Rabbin of Achaya, the slug was only with them for a short while, and then they asked for it again a little bit later. The Abarbanel says that the slav was actually only there for that night, one time. It's not like it came to them for a week or a month or whatever it was. No, it came once. They could save, they saved that meat for a while by salting it, but it never came in such abundant amounts ever again until the 40th year. This is because the mun was good for them and their bodies, but the slav was not. It was fatty and it was bad for their health. The more they ate from it, as delicious as it was, it was worse for them. That's why there were people who died from eating too much of it in Parsha Peshal Baloscha. The hint is that the mun came in the morning, clarity and beauty, while the slav came at night, unclear and cloudy. In fact, that's kind of the opinion that we had up above, right, when we mentioned up above, that it's possible that that it never really came, meaning it was never for them, and never, the Shachalatayra said that it never really came in the first place, right, that they said they saw it come, but they never ate from it, because they knew that it was bad for them, the Abarbanel seems to say that they knew that that was bad for them, so they never actually took it, the Malbim says, when the slav came with the mun, there was one chisaron, because the slav was everywhere, there was no room for the mun, and the mun had to come down outside of the camp, when the slav left them, and all they had was the mun, the latter, the mun was able to fall right near their camps, so right now, the slav was coming right by them, and the mun was far away, later, Right, the mun was going to come right next to them. That's when you were able to tell the difference between Sedik and Roshayim, where the mun fell near their homes or outside of the camp. 
The other thing was that when the slove was there, the mud had to be covered by towel to keep it safe from the desert sand and sun. When it landed near them, that was no longer necessary. Because remember, if it landed in the Anadia Kavod, then the likelihood is that it didn't have to be, it wasn't dirty. So it wouldn't need the Shechvas towel. Only now, when the slove was there, and it was falling on the sand, that's when they needed the Shechvas towel. Refersh points out that the mun, which was necessary for them to eat, was outside of the camp. It required them to go looking for it, while the slove, which is only given to them in order to quiet their complaints, was right there by their feet. It seems like everything Hashem gave us, right, deserves our cooperation in some way. They had to do their part to go out to get the mun. So it was on purpose. When it deals with that, when you're dealing with the mun, when you're dealing with bread, they had to go out and do something and not just get it. Meat, on the other hand, was given to them directly. As Naim Latour says, that's the reason, because we have a curse. With the sweat of your brow, that's how you eat bread. The bread over here is the mun. You want bread, you want mun, you got to work for it, right? The slav is not the way. There's only one exception to that rule. Somebody who accepts upon himself the yoke of Torah is taken away the yoke of Derech Eretz. So Talmidei Chachamim had the mun fall right at their doorstep. They didn't need that curse of B'zei HaZapach because it was taken away from them, so they had no problem. The Rishayim had to really search for it. The Bainanim found it right outside of the camp. There's another obvious reason, says Yaznayim Torah, why the mun could not fall right by them, because then it would have been sullied through the mud and dirt around them since the mun was covered with dew. I don't understand that at all, because if they were in Ananiya covered, it shouldn't become dirty at all. The Ananiya Kavod should have protected them. I have no idea idea what he means by that. But I guess in Pshat, maybe the Ananiya Kavod didn't protect the stuff that were around them. Rabino Ephraim says the Slav really did fill up the land. It was throughout the three parcels of the camp, and it was two almost high. That way a person could stand up, grab the Slav with their hands. The measure indicates that the mud piled itself, itself up so high that it was 60 almost in the air. Right, And then he says someone who doesn't believe such a thing was possible would not see it himself. But it did happen. That's what Rabbi Nofraim says, the Rokeach says it, the Rekinati says it. Interestingly, um, they didn't see this. They didn't see the mun piled 60 almost high if they didn't believe it. But according to the Rokeach, they did see rivers of mun when it melted going through the desert. That they saw. But they didn't see the 60 amma piles. I don't know why. Rashi says about the last part of the Pusik that the dew refers to the cover over the mun. Based on another Pusik, it says, Uberedes hatal. Over here it says, Shikhvas hatal. It must be that the dew went down on the ground, and the men, the, then the mun went upon it. And then there was another measure of dew that fell upon the mun as if the mun was placed inside a little box of dew. Targum Yonason describes it as a set table in front of them as if the bread was ready made for them on a table set with different plates, utensils, etc. The Medrash Lakartov says that a northern wind would come during the night and sweep up the desert. Rain would then come and water the ground with dew at the very end. The wind would blow it until the dew looked like tables of gold on the ground, I assume because the clear color on top of the sand, which was yellow, made it look like golden, you know, gold appearances, whatever it is. And only then would the mun fall. And that's what the Jews took and ate. Rehearsed suggests that the first layer of dew moistened the surface level of the sand of the desert and made it firm, so that the seeds of the mun did not fall into the sands and become inedible. The second fall washed away the grains completely from any dirt or dust that might have settled on them, making it clean to eat. So that's the idea behind it. It, like, moistened it so that sand wouldn't get in, and then nothing would blow on it. Right, I think that's the idea behind it. It's very shlomo, where the Radomsker says this towel represented something very great. Every morning, a brand new layer of towel, and every day, more Kedusha was being brought into the world. He calls this a Yichud Shalem Chadash. 
that through the mitzvahs of, and the Torah that city come amongst them, they were able to bring down a brand new layer of towel. Somehow this Kedusha allowed them to be satisfied with the food that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent them every single morning. And that's what it represents. That's what the towel represents. Either way, Talio quotes the Ramon, the beginning of Hilchah Shabbos, who says there are some places that have been meaning to eat mulyasa, called pastita, or like a bereka, with meat inside it, on Friday night as a zecher for the mon, which was covered on the top and on the bottom. We all know that we put a challah cover on top, and the challah is something on the bottom when we hold the challah. But this, they had the minug to eat the pastita, the brekas. The Chafetz Chaim comments on this in the Bir Alocha, and it says it's a strange minug. Why would we make a zecher for the mon, which didn't fall on Shabbos? It fell on Arab Shabbos, not on Shabbos. Tosim Psachim Kufum Abayz, Dibar Maskol Sha'in says, this is why we do it on Friday night, to remind ourselves that the Mun didn't come down on this day, right? But it fell beforehand, and you're using it for that night. But why wouldn't we make a Zechah for this on Yom Tif, if that were true? Since the Lecha Mishnah we make on Yom Tif, because it happened on Shabbos just like on Yom Tif, so why wouldn't it be that that way as well? Why don't we do, for example, eat pastida or Molisa on Yom Tif night? So the Sefer Torah Chaim says this is because Shabbos Bereshis is a dogma of what's going to be on Shabbos Lasad Lavo. That's why we do many things on Shabbos to remind us of Olam Haba. We know that aside from meat and fish, we're going to be served mun in the future, and that's why we make a zecher for it on Friday night even now. So barekas are a zecher for the mun, which is going to be a zecher for what we'll eat in the future, la'asid level. That's all from the Siduro Shel Shabbos. That brings that down. And I saw it in the Talioros before I saw it in the, 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 the what's it called, Siduro Shel Shabbos. Ibn Ezra says there is someone who's named Chivi, who claims he found the mun, and it's called Tirnagavan in Persian, right? Man in Arabic and mana in French. Like, that's the mana that they say in English. So, there are many issues with these claims. Number one, we know where Harsinai is today, and it doesn't fall in that area. Number two, I've seen this mana in El-Zakir, and it only comes down in Nisan and Ear, while the man fell every day for 40 years. Apparently, Ibn Ezra saw it. Right? He saw it in El-Zakir. Right? But he says, it's only in Nisan and Ear, not all year long. Number three, this mana doesn't melt in the sun like the man did. Number four, it doesn't dry up at night like the Mun did. Number five, it's not strong and therefore cannot be ground up by people like the Mun was. Number six, it melts when it hits the tongue, right? The Mun did, not necessarily this. Number seven, it doesn't satisfy a person, nor is it used for food. It's more like a spice used for healing. Number eight, it doesn't come down double on Friday. Number nine, it doesn't only fall on Jewish camps as it did in the Midbar. Number ten, the Mun stayed with them when they crossed the Jordan River until the 10th of Nisan. This mana did not do so. So the Ibn Ezra knocks it out and says, no, it's not the same thing. However, in the Sefer Masi Yisrael, Perak Yud Dalid, Rabbi Yisrael ben Yosef ben Yemen says, when he arrived in the city of Kirkak of Iraq, he saw mun falling with the dew of the morning. He said it appeared as hard white seeds, which is coriander seeds, how it's described. And the people would gather it in baskets every morning, put it out in the sun until it melted like soft cheese, and they use it as a spread for their different breads. Isn't that interesting? He brought that down. He himself tasted it and says it's sweet like honey and has a really, really good smell. So, Rabbi Yaman, Rabbi, um, what's it called? Rabbi Yisrobin, Yosef Ben Yaman, in Masi Yisrobin says he saw it, and that money exists even today. He says this happens in Baghdad, as well as a few other places, but there it only falls on wood, not on the ground. Only in Kirkak did they find it among the fields. He then traveled to Harsinai, and he found the exact same thing, and it was even sweeter than what fell in Iraq. So against the Ibn Ezra, it sounds like he's saying that the man is a real thing, and it actually happens. That's definitely what it sounds like. Rechaim Palagi, Palagi, in his Sefer Nefesh Chaim, said he heard from a Mordechai Alevi that in the country of Hungary, in the morning, there are small seeds that fall with the dew, which they crush and cook. 
but that's in Hungary. That's not in Arabic lands. It's not in the Middle East. However, the first soul in Avos, Parake Mishkavov, says one cannot compare what we see nowadays to what fell for Bnei Saul at that time, even though they thought it was the same thing, but it certainly wasn't. They knew about this other stuff. Ours doesn't rot if it's left overnight. Ours doesn't need to be cooked you know, in order to be eaten. Ours doesn't taste like anything you can imagine. Ours doesn't disappear if you took too much. There's obviously more, but the point is, like the Ibn Ezra, right, what we have and what the Mun was is certainly not the exact same thing. That's the opinion. That's the Ibn Ezra and the Tiferes Yisrael against the Nefesh Chaim, Rechaim Palaji, and against the Masi Yisrael. Right? So that's that. So now, more than that, at the very end, we're just going to say that Rabbi Elazimi Garmiza said this Shechvas Tau was not only used to protect the Mun, it also allowed grasses and herbs to grow around the camp so that the animals would have food to eat. You ever wonder what the animals were eating? So you probably thought the Be'er Miriam gave them food, but apparently it was the Shechvas Tal that did it. It's assuming that the animals weren't allowed to eat the mun for themselves. There were deer that ate that, and then they were eaten, and the taste of the mun was within the deer. That's what the Metra says. But apparently their animals weren't allowed to eat the mun. They ate this instead, and that was supposedly something that was a lot awesomer. That went for them as well. Crazy idea, but we'll stop with that. Have a good job, everybody.